All right, everybody, welcome back to the best hour of the day. Fern here, and I am here with uh, Dr. Tom Siskron, who uh, has been in the CrossFit community for a long time. We're going to talk about a lot of things. And uh, if you did follow the CrossFit podcast with Savon at uh, all uh, for the short while that they were doing that, uh, he and his partner, who started CrossFit Medicus One at their affiliate down in Louisiana, uh, we're on that podcast, uh, podcast as well. So, and uh, and he's also at the same box as Jeff Westmoreland, who was recently on the podcast, who is part of the CrossFit Legal Action Group. So, uh, it, for me, it's always a treat to talk to doctors in the CrossFit community because uh, it gives me an opportunity to learn, and I'm just super excited to see medical professionals who are passionate about CrossFit as well. So, Doc, thank you for your time. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, I did want to talk about. <laughs> The so we were chatting a little bit before we recorded, and you were kind of telling some stories. Um, your background, and I, I feel like this is pretty heavy in the in the medical world. You said you're a triathlete before, correct? I was. And then, For so about, how? Uh, probably about ten years. That's a lot of mileage. Yeah, not not high level. I mean, I never was. Um, you know, uh, Sammy Inkinen uh, wasn't at risk of losing his title to me, but you know, I I, I did. I was in residency at the time and my first few years of private practice. So I was very busy, but I rode uh, several times a week. I swam several times a week. Running was always difficult for me because of uh, some joint issues. But, you know, I did sprint distance stuff and probably do one or two a year for 10 years. And uh, I loved the training more than the comp competing. And I still do even with CrossFit now. I mean, it's, yeah. about, it's the process for me, not, not attaining some goal. What was your fastest sprint time? Um, for uh, uh, the whole triathlon, for the yep. sprint distance, mm -hmm. uh, 53 or four minutes. I that's that's I might, trucking. I might, I, might be, I might be not remembering, but I was not that great. I mean, uh, no, that might I be mean, for just the bike component. Uh, 52, 53 for the bike. Because that's what the bike is what 14 always, is 18. 18. Okay. I was always middle of the pack. You okay. know, I'd, I'd average about 19 miles per hour on the bike on my bike ride. Um, I would be pretty far back uh, in the run because that was my hardest thing to run. My best 5K ever is like 25 minutes. I'm not a good okay. runner. Okay. I never have been. And now I can't run because of joint issues. But uh, the bike was probably my best. Swimming, I'd be middle to front of the pack for age group, and then run, I'd slip off. Uh, I think sprints are fantastic. Like the uh, the distances are just long enough that most people can participate as long as you're somewhat comfortable on the water. You know, like you yeah. know, for somebody who's like uh, you know, even some for somebody who's average, you know, you're even not that experienced. They're probably anywhere between ninety minutes to two hours, and and you're out of there. You don't have yeah. to put a crazy amount of mileage on there. Virginia Beach has or did. They don't anymore. They had one of the last standing open water ocean sprint triathlons here at the beach. And they canceled it after some ridiculous number of years, uh, about five years ago. And mo I think mostly they canceled it because they always had it in September, which is right around hurricane season kicks in and the surf would just crush yeah. people. The last one that I did, and I believe I did the last one, I remember getting out of the water and I'm not a great swimmer, but I was a rescue swimmer when I was in the Navy and I've spent some time in the water. And, um, I remember getting out of the water, looking around and I was the only one <laughs> out who got out of the water. And I was yeah. like, man, that's, that's not right. 
and it was because the surf was so bad. I mean, people were getting tossed back onto shore from the break and all that stuff. Um, but I, just, I think that's a fun distance. You don't have to put in a, an incredible amount of training for that. Yeah, you know, I, and, and like I said, I was about the process. I wasn't ever that great. I was kind of middle of the pack for my age group. Um, and, uh, but I enjoyed the process. And yeah, you, you're right. The swimming is definitely the limiting factor. I, I actually saw a lady die, unfortunately, in a, in a triathlon uh, from On the balcony. It was the, um, it was the Florida Ironman. Okay. And my ex-wife was doing Ironman uh, races and um, it was about, we were getting ready. I had my two boys with, we had young children at the time and uh, she was swimming. We were going to go down there to meet her as she came out of the water and wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I looked out the balcony. I saw ambulances and all this and came to find out later a, a lady had died. Um, in the in the open water in the ocean, so it's it's, definitely- it's it's a real thing. I mean, even though you're not, you know, you're basically swimming along the shore. But I, I remember that one when I swam that last one, and in and in rescue swimming school, like you get into some pretty aggressive scenarios in the water. So you know, I'm not an incredibly fast swimmer, but I feel pretty comfortable on the water. Um, and I got there was a, I was probably swimming. It was weird because you couldn't really tell where the break was going to be, and it was moving around and. Um, I was swimming and I just got caught on the, on the underside of a wave that broke and another swimmer basically just landed right on top of me. And I remember coming up out of the water and I'm like, I am really lucky to be conscious right now. Uh, and if I wasn't, that'd have been it. And I finished the swim and I was like, I dodged a bullet there. That was, that was close. Um, but yeah, the, uh, that's the only downside about that open water stuff is really hard to keep track of participants in those scenarios. Right. It, it is hard. And the ones that I did uh, were always in um, small lakes or yeah. man-made reservoirs. Like there's one in uh, in a suburb of Dallas that was in the okay. small man reservoir. So it's uh, it was easier to keep track of us. But yeah, that was the most anxiety-provoking thing for me too because I'm comfortable in the water, but that still is anxiety-provoking for me. And, uh, you know, my sons are exactly the opposite. They've grown up swimming competitively and they can okay. swim they can swim literally for hours when they were swimming and, and not stop, but I'm just not that way. Yeah. It's, it's hard to get to that point. If you've, if you don't grow up doing that, I mean, I grew up swimming quite a bit, but never competitively. So even when I did get back in the water at a later age, there was a pretty steep learning curve there to get, to get comfortable and learn how to relax and, and do all that stuff. But, um, so, so talk to me a little bit about your, so you're doing triathlons and then kind of what age, what, what, and how do you find CrossFit? Because that's led you to a lot of really cool things at this point. Yeah, so I uh, started triathlons after I got out of the Air Force, um, which is right before I came back to start residency, 2002. I was 32 years old. Okay. Um, I've always worked out my entire life, mainly just the bro sesh stuff, you know, yep. bench press, um, you know, go to the gym, uh, backs and by, um, chest and try type thing. Yep. And uh, I would run occasionally, thought I was in good shape, started triathlons after my ex-wife got into them. And from about 2002 to 2010, uh, that was my primary source of exercise. And it was, it was a lot. And I really gravitated more towards the biking. I was a huge biking fan. I've done several century rides, which is a good story. If you remind me when we come to the CrossFit part. I, I, t- I too I'm have done one century ride, which I'm happy to, well, happy to trade stories uh-huh. on that. CrossFit truly does prepare you for anything, and I can prove it now. But, um, you know, I got into more of the century riding, bike riding uh, three, four times a week. I um, thought I was in the best shape of my life. Uh, you know, I, 
and and I would talk to patients about exercise and your uh, excuse me just one sec yeah go ahead open. nope you're good how uh, you know you need to, to be doing uh, exercise running biking whatever and uh, eat eat right eat uh, low fat um, nuts and grains and and breads and things like that um, was the way I used to eat and and I was a carbo loader you know that that yep that um, community is all about the carbs and I would eat cereal for breakfast bagels for breakfast uh, sandwiches pasta all the time I was not afraid of sugar because I was burning it on the bike and I needed it on the bike yep. you know that's the way you're taught gotta have it to survive and so um, that was my lifestyle it's high carb um, high um, low intensity, long duration exercise is pretty much it. And I thought I was in the best shape of my life until I walked into the CrossFit gym. And um, that happened in 2010. I went through a divorce and, you know, um, depression does a lot of things. And I, I just quit working out altogether. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was about a year where I was just not doing anything other than eating whatever I wanted and not working out. And and thankfully my cousin spurred me into the crossfit gym and uh, i just kind of started slow and, and it doesn't take you long once you get into it if you show up for a few months you realize hey there's something to this and your body starts changing your your outlook on life starts changing um and it's just amazing and uh, i had actually changed my diet a little bit before i actually got crossfit because i was always hungry um, okay. If I didn't eat, if I didn't eat every two hours, it, it, I'd be like, I, I deserve to be on one of those new Snickers commercials where you're hangry. You know, you get that, <laughs> like you're not that you when you're gnawing, hungry. <laughs> yeah. That gnawing pain in your, in your mid gut and you got pain behind your eyeballs and you just feel foggy. And it's like, there's something wrong with me. This is not normal to be hungry all the time like this. And so I literally, this is how my journey into nutrition started. I literally typed into Google. Um, probably on this computer, we're sitting right here on my floor, my old computer. I typed uh, um, headaches if you don't eat on time. And I'm curious what came up. Yeah, time. what came up? Uh, the first thing that popped up was um, Mark Sisson's Primal Nutrition book. Oh, is, uh, good Mark's book. Daily Apple. Mm -hmm. Mark's Daily Apple, Primal Nutrition. I started reading all the stuff he, he was talking about, talking about insulin spikes and how mm -hmm. bottoms are strong. I bought the book, read it within like two days. And I was like, this makes so much sense. And I went hardcore, no sugar, no carbs at all. And was just a new man. And it just, that's just amazing. That's uh, I'm, I've been fortunate. I have a lot of good friends that I either grew up with or have uh, come to have friendships with over time that are, that are now doctors. And I, um, it's funny because that story, number one is not uncommon. But B, there's a misconception that uh, that if I'm an MD or DO or whatever, that a lot of people just assume because you are a medical a medical professional that you have some training in nutrition, oh, and yeah. that's a big misconception. Um, and I always I forget what I mean. I mean, you tell me what your experience was uh, when you were th went through. Where did, where did you go to med school? Just here in Shreveport, Louisiana, LSU Medical LSU, Center. LSU, okay, Shreveport. cool. And did you uh, did you go to LSU for undergrad as well? Uh, I went to Centenary, which is oh, uh, yep, oldest college west of Mississippi. Yep, uh, I uh, here in Shreveport also. 
I did one of my recruiting visits okay, at a high boy. school there at uh, at Centenary. Yep. Um, the recruiting uh, for, for uh, basketball. Yeah, I played basketball okay. in college. Yeah. I was baseball there for a couple. Okay. Of years. Nice. Well, I decided that uh, baseball was not going to pay the bills in the future. I needed to uh, <laughs> figure something else out. Yep. Yeah, basketball didn't really pan out. I didn't make it to the league, so I'm here. Um, yeah. So what? Do you remember what the extent of the topic of nutrition was covered in med school? Almost nothing. I, I really seriously don't remember any specific nutrition class. Now, I, that's been a long time ago, but they may have, we may have had something, but I, I just don't remember anything. I think it's all more um, through interpretation of the literature on what causes heart disease, you know? Yeah. We all know, of course, that fat causes heart disease. <laughs> You know, for those of you that are not looking, yeah, coat, that's the guy. What the guy in the long white coat tells us in the short white coat, so we believe it. It's <laughs> and we start preaching it too. And I preached it for twenty years, and I feel so bad for all the people I, I told that to. There was one guy when I was in the Air Force. Um, he was um, he was six hundred pounds, I think. He was a spouse. Wow. Yeah, six hundred pounds, and he kept coming to me for all the things you would expect. And I was in an urgent care clinic at that time. Okay. He kept getting little abscesses here and there and, and back pains and all the things you would expect from a 600 pounder. And I really took to help him lose weight. And uh, I was all about calories in calories out at that time. Cause that's what we were taught is that mm -hmm. um, weight is nothing more than a balance of calories in calories out. What you eat really doesn't matter. Uh, but you do need to avoid fat. I knew that. And so, um, uh, you know, he would, he would talk to me and say, yeah, I didn't eat that much for lunch. I only had six bratwurst. And I said, well, bring me that, bring me that bratwurst pack. And he's talking, you know, six little bitty hot dogs can't be that much in that. Yeah. Well, we looked at it and it was like 2000 calories in those things. So I said, all right, we're going we're gonna to change this. And I had him counting his calories and, and, writing down everything he was eating and I was getting his calories down to about 1500 a day and he would lose a little bit of weight and he'd plateau. But it, I felt so bad because he was telling me stories about how I've got a four-year-old son and I can't enjoy him. All I do is I lay on the floor and he climbs over me. And that's basically my interaction with my son. And I, I wanted to help him so bad. And yeah. I, I put so much effort into him over the course of about a year before we lost contact. And I don't need, my bet is that he's probably not alive at this point because he was, 40 at the time and that was 20 yeah 20 the odds years. are pretty odds are not good there so on that note what is your what are your thoughts on that ideal in general calories in calories out because i i think my opinion is that the the truth lies somewhere in the middle i don't think it's irrelevant but i don't think it should be the thing that Absolutely. you concentrate on Absolutely. i mean obviously calories in are going to matter i mean if i eat five thousand calories of the food that i think is healthy I'm going to gain weight unless I burn that much it, it, it is a factor calories in calories out what people don't understand is that you don't have to measure it I don't measure anything because our bodies are well designed our, our hormones are well designed to tell me when to eat my philosophy now is I eat like a wolf I eat when I'm hungry and I eat until I'm full okay and it it there's no other animal on the planet that has to count his calorie intake or his carb intake or his protein intake or his fat balance. I mean, you eat what 
what nature is has provided you in your environment and uh, that will keep you healthy and if you eat that stuff I believe our brain chemistry and our body chemistry in general works the way it's designed to work. You know, people who say, and you may be familiar with the um, waterlogged book. Uh, yep. Um, you know, the, the Gatorade recommendation is drink every 30 minutes, one, one thing of Gatorade or whatever to prevent thirst. And I mean, why do we need to be told when and how much to drink? What other animal on the planet has to be told that? It's just totally ridiculous. We drink when we're thirsty and we'll be fine. If you eat hungry, you'll find you eat the right foods. And so um, I have found that eating a higher fat, uh, moderate protein, uh, uh, but I also get carbs in the forms of uh, vegetables mainly. Mm -hmm. If I eat a higher fat, moderate protein diet, my body tells me when I'm hungry next based on how much I eat. If I don't have time to sit down and engorge or it's not, it's not, Pro, it's not there for me that day. I'm going to be hungry a little sooner. If I sit down and they've got something I like in in the hospital cafeteria, like yesterday, um, they had uh, they had a fatty um, brisket. I, I, I ate a, a bunch of fatty brisket and uh, some greens with olive oil and vinegar on it, and some squash and some some broccoli. And I mean, I had a huge plate of food. And I wasn't hungry again until uh, really late uh, last night. And but I have might, you, not, might not was, have even eaten. Uh, sometimes I fast because I'm not hungry uh, at, at dinner and I'll go to bed without eating. That that's actually, now. that's what I was going to ask you is if, is if that principle has kind of led to something that kind of resembles intermittent fasting. Cause I know it has for me, like I regularly only eat breakfast and dinner. Yeah. It's intermittent fasting um, naturally. It's nothing that I plan. People ask me all the time, do you intermittent fast? I was like, yes, but it's not scheduled. It's just, I eat when I'm hungry. I eat until I'm full. And if I happen to have had a huge feeding, I like mm -hmm. to call it, then I'm not going to be hungry for a long time. Because, I'm the same way. Because the calories in right there, my body interpreted as, hey, we've got a lot of calories. I stored fat after that meal yesterday. You know, I've got a 5% body fat, but... I've made it five point something yesterday after lunch because five percent. That's the last in body scan I had. Good for uh, you. How old are you? 50 this July. You're beating me by like seven or eight percent. So good for you. I, I'm usually around five to seven percent. What? That's great. It's, it's interesting that you bring up and I, I was glad you went there because I found something very similar with regard to my just general intake and what the, what that, kind of ends up looking like at the end of the day. And I weigh pretty much the same that I did in college, plus or minus five pounds here or there. But I mean, I regularly fluctuate anywhere between like 185 to 195 at the very heaviest, like 195 for me is heavy, but I'm regularly like right around that 185. And, and how, that's how tall are you? Five, five, like right at 511. Yeah, see I'm six two and those are okay. almost exact numbers. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'll get, if I don't eat, if I miss, um, miss a meal, don't eat for, uh, you know, a dinner or whatever, and wake up the next morning after a heavy workout where I may have sweat a little bit, I can get into the 188 range. Okay. Um, if I, uh, if I eat heavy, the max I get is 194, but I'm yeah. in this most narrow range, 88 to 94. And I've been there for years. So you're rolling around with about 5% body fat and you don't measure your food. And you don't really 
like count calories or do intermittent fasting on purpose? Not at all. So then my following question is, have you always been kind of at that body composition or has that, have you settled into that since you kind of left the triathlon world and started eating like this? When I was in the triathlon world and I have actually some pictures, if they'll show up on this video, you may be very interested to see these. I'll see if I can pull them up. Um, I had much, much higher body fat when I was into triathlons. I bet I was uh, 12, 13% okay. easy. I had a dad bod. I had the little gut. <laughs> I actually have a picture that I like to show people when I'm, I'm sitting, sitting with a French fry in my hand and my gut sticking out. <laughs> I, I was not obese by any means, but I was on the road to insulin resistance for sure. Okay. Um, and, uh, but I, I, I've had uh, three kidney stone passages in my life and uh, I don't know. Let's see if, if I can get it. Can you see these? Yep. So the one over here, okay. you're not going to be able to see it, but what I did is I compared the three scans. So one was from when I was 32. Okay. One was from when I was 42, which is the, the about a month after, or no, about three months after I started CrossFit. And then one was from when I was uh, 48. Okay. And so 10 years the and then eight years after that. The one when I was 32, you would expect I'd be years. pretty healthy. I measured with the little tool we have to measure distances. I measured the thickness of my abdominal fat layer above my rectus muscles. Okay. I measured the fat in my, uh, in my flank, you know, your love yep. handles. Yep. I measured the thickness of my psoas muscles, of my abdominal mm -hmm. muscles, of my lateral obliques. And I, I did that for all three scans. The one when I was in my thirties, a healthy triathlete, um, the fat was at its maximum and the fat went from max medium to almost non-existent now, right? The muscle, however, this is where it's really interesting. The muscle was medium when I was 32. Okay. Then when I had not been doing CrossFit, it was smaller. It was the minimum it's ever been uh, 10 years later, which is what the natural sarcopenia of aging is. Mm -hmm. I mean, as we age, you hear it written all over, you lose how many percent of muscle mass every year, 3% yep. of muscle mass every year. I mean, I have visual evidence, evidence between 32 and 42 that the thickness of my psoas muscle, my erector spinae muscles, my obliques, my dominus rectus muscles, all of those had gotten thinner between 32 and 42. Yet then you jump to when I'm 48 and they're just like, boom, you know, they're even bigger than when I was 32. So I've got bigger muscles and less fat than when I was 32. And it's just, it's a really interesting graphic to show how eating right and, and, exercising those muscles, aging is not a, a, a process where we have to suffer until we end up in the nursing home, like Greg says, was someone feeding us green jello through a plastic spoon. You know, it, it's, you can combat the age-related sarcopenia. I really need to go back and find, I read a study years ago, and I don't remember like what the parameters of the study were, any of that stuff, uh, but it was, it basically outlined that there's two, uh, things they're looking at as far as longevity and health of life. One of them, the factor was muscle mass and the mm -hmm. other one was grip strength. And they're just like, if you measure those two things as you get older, if, if they can, it, for most people, the doing well would be maintain it much less 
adding to either one of those. Yeah. Uh, but they said like, if, and if you look at people as they get older, the ones that are the healthiest, the most vibrant getting around significantly more muscle mass, uh, uh, muscle mass and have grip strength, which those two kind of go hand in hand, meaning like you're probably doing some sort of weight training or resistance training of some sort. And that's what we try to preach to all of our, our, all of our athletes. I'm like, listen, you can lift weights as long as you want to and need to. Yeah. At age 50, I'm getting ready to hopefully a new stretch max, um, where, when I was uh, lifting at age 24, I thought I was I thought I was king of the world because I could put a hundred and I think 155 pounds over my head in the cleaning jerk. You know, I was I was the boss. And now that's like you know we start warming up at 155 now. Oh. And I'm 50. But, I, I, hey, you know, I that, tell you what, that, that makes that makes you a superhuman. And if you are doing that at 50, you're doing just fine. Well, my goal right now is 210 on the snatch. I'm hoping to get it here soon. I'm already awesome. at 205. But that, that fits so perfectly what you said about the muscle mass with, um, with Greg's teachings slash preachings is it's all about our power generation. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to maintain your power through life and, and you see him draw it on that on that uh, scale and then add the third axis where it looks like a tent you want your your tents to be as high as possible so as you walk out in age to the end of that tent you don't get limited by your power and that's what puts people into that and it's a very sad and personal story is a, a very close personal friend of mine teacher mentor family friend died last year and he died at age 89 which he had a wonderful life but he did not have to die at age 89. He died at age 89 because he did not have the muscle mass to prevent ending up in the nursing home after he fell. He, he was picking up a pin of all things. He, he had just had surgery for a hernia, which any normal person would recover easily from and bounce right back. But he stayed in the hospital for a few days, got home, was weak, thought he was back to normal, but he had lost enough to where he bent over to pick up a pin and he fell backwards, landed on his uh, butt, and fractured his vertebra. He had a compression fracture. Oh wow! And that was the that was the end of it. I mean, it, it was uh, from that point where he fractured it. It was probably four or five months of just downward spiral because once you lose the ability to to be mobile at at that point, I mean, it's just an accelerated process. So, had he been maintaining his muscle mass enough to where he would have had the reserve even after his minor surgery to bend over and pick up the pin without losing balance and falling, he would still be alive today. I'm absolutely convinced of that. That's, that's a very, I use an example like that when I give both the, what is CrossFit lecture and cause you've, you've been to the level one. And when I talk about the sickness, wellness, fitness continuum and talking and giving examples of that, and typically I'll ask the participants, you know, has anybody heard a story that sounds something like this, you know, uncle Bob, by most metrics was healthy. He fell down the stairs. That was now this waterfall of complications. And then six months later, Uncle Bob is dead. And you're just like, what happened? You know, and it's because we have people that are living in the kind of state of wellness, thinking that that's so that's where they need to be. Mm -hmm. And they don't have far to go to get to sickness. And um, I use that exact example when I give the course because that's something that hits home for a lot of people because again, a lot of people have experienced that either you know firsthand, secondhand, but they, they know of something that sounds very similar to that.
and it changes with age, you know, and, and Greg says this in his sickness wellness continuum talk too, is that yep. there are tons of stories about um, uh, veterans who survive things and people who are in car wrecks who survive things that they uh, survive probably because they were CrossFitters, you know, a hundred percent, you know, had, had my friend at 89 been in a massive car wreck, he probably would have died even if he had been maintaining his muscle mass because at that point, your tent is, is narrower. You don't have as much leeway. But certainly, he, he could have survived a, a minor procedure hernia operation. You know, it's, so it's, it's different for every age. But my goal now when I talk to my patients is to prevent them from um, getting into the nursing home. And they're all just walking that little razor's edge fine line of waiting for one little thing to push them over the edge. And then I know it's just this down the drain spiral mm-hmm. that um, – that will exponentially take them into the grave and it doesn't take much. I mean, I just start my patients off with, I I tell them to sit at their dinner table and stand up and sit down, you know, start there and do it. If you can do it 10 times the first day, that's your number. And every day you try to do one more, you know, that's, that's an example that uh, I think it was Joe Alexander, who's a flow master. I don't know if you've met him before, but he'll, he'll, he he lives out in uh, Nevada now, but he'll be at the DDC sometime. But I think he was, I think he was training, I forgot somebody else on seminar staff's dad or mom, and they were, they were refused to do squats. And he said, all right, well, let's just do some sit to stands in the chair. <laughs> and they're like, okay, I can do that. And they're like, all right, whatever we want to call them. Like, we'll call them whatever we need to, but we're going to squat. Well, that's, um, that's funny. You bring that up is that I was talking to another doctor the other day. So no, well, I can't do CrossFit because of my knees. I can't squat. I was like, you sat down in that chair, didn't you? Can you stand <laughs> up out of that chair? Uh, that's, if that's all you can do, that's where I would start you. He's like, oh, I never thought about it that way. I was like, yeah, you're not going to do the squats I'm doing, but I'm going to start you just sitting down into a box and standing mm-hmm. up. And you know, another sad story is there's a friend of mine I've known for my whole life who's a few years younger than me, but he's, I guess, 48 now and or 46 maybe. Um, we brought him into the gym to try and – Jeff and I did. Okay. A friend of us. We brought him into our gym to try and get him down the right path of health and fitness because he's not in a good place. And – he could not do 10 box squats without getting short of breath. I've seen that before. There's so many people out there walking on this razor thin edge of death that, I mean, golly, to be 46 and not be able to sit down and stand up 10 times without getting short of breath means you're in bad shape. Really bad shape. And, and that is kind of, uh, that kind of leads me to something that I, I would love to have you just kind of give your thoughts on, which is, the whole, I mean, everybody's pretty aware that, you know, COVID-19 is a thing. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts on just objectively, like when you kind of, you know, look at the landscape and, and kind of look into the data, what do you see? Like everybody's scared to death of this thing. Um, but what do you think people generally need to know that's not politically based or like any of that stuff? Just like, yeah. hey, here's, I, here's I the been- science. I've been digging through the data a lot and uh, I, I look at the locals, the state data. Last night I looked at the, at the local data in Escambia County, Florida, because a friend of mine asked me something about their condo pool being closed. And um, I look at the national data and number one, this is a serious virus. It, it kills people and mm-hmm. it's going to kill thousands of people and it's going to kill thousands of more. And it's here with us forever. That's my, my belief. This is, you know, people are sheltering at home, sheltering in place, quarantining, thinking, oh, we're going to be able to come out one day once the storm has passed 
no, there's going to be another storm. It's always going to be another storm. And this is a novel virus, so it's been, it's been incredibly quick. And the way I explain that is right now everybody drives, right? And there's about, um, you know, um, 15 per, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but, you know, there's thousands of deaths um, nationally with car accidents. Let's say Elon Musk came to us tomorrow and gave us each our own personal uh, hovercraft and said, okay, y'all go have fun. How many hovercraft deaths do you think there would be in the first week, month, year? Most of them. Fun. <laughs> but as we got used to them, started using them more, we made laws just like we did with cars. If you go back and research the data on automobile accidents in the early 1920s, it was this epidemic. I mean, they were really concerned how are we going to stop people from dying from all these car wrecks? Because it was this new technology. People didn't know how to do it. But now it, the curve has come down and it's a manageable rate that we live with. The exact same thing is happening with influenza and COVID. I don't think that COVID ultimately is going to be something that on a yearly basis kills that many more people than flu. But it is now an additional killer. Mm-hmm. The influenza virus, however, we've been around for hundreds of years, thousands of years, and we have measures against it. We have um, vaccines against it. We have precautions against it. And we have determined that we accept about um, 5,000 deaths a week in peak season from influenza, and we get on with our lives. Mm-hmm. Someone just dropped COVID on us like Elon Musk dropping hovercrafts on us, you know? It's a new virus, so it's going to kill a lot more people quickly. But once this initial um, burnout happens, I think it's just going to become another one of those viruses. You know, RSV kills 15,000 people a year. That's something uh, that most people have no – they don't even know what RSV is. And I'll, yeah. to be very frank with you, the only reason I know anything about RSV is because our daughter uh, was born – 15 weeks premature and we spent 95 days in the NICU she was born in January and that was all they talked to us about they're like she cannot get sick and RSV is your biggest threat right now but you know RSV even kills adults people yeah like elderly people yeah for the most part 15,000 adults a year I, I read on the CDC data so you know that's the first thing this is a serious virus I'm not minimizing it at all you know if you are at risk watch yourself Mm-hmm. Because right now it's running rampant through the world and it's going to continue that until it burns itself out. Um, the second thing I say is that I would rather be around someone with COVID than with influenza. Really? I, I think I think I would um, have a higher chance as I age of uh, dying from influenza because um, or, or am I at my age, maybe not as I age with uh, uh, other illnesses, but I'd rather my children be around someone with COVID than influenza. Influenza kills young people at a much higher rate. Yeah. Um, You know, I was saying this earlier today and someone said, yeah, but a friend of mine's child got it and almost died. They were intubated. They were 11, didn't have any other diseases. I was like, yeah, that's one. There's been two deaths in Louisiana under age 18. Mm -hmm. And I know every state's about the same. It just, it's for whatever reason, there's a lot of theories. Uh, Shaka Gillen talked about it on Savannah's podcast. Uh, yesterday and there's another theory I've heard about the MMR vaccine possibly being one of the reasons it's protective but you know whatever the reason is whether it's because they don't have the chronic diseases this virus is preying upon 
for. Maybe they don't have the same receptors, the ACE receptors as adults, whatever. It's safer for children than influenza. So, you know, it's- Yeah, I was, I was reading somewhere that they are not aware of any uh, like child to adult uh, transmission. Like it ju- they just haven't seen it anywhere. They haven't tracked down any cases of that. Did you see, um, did you see the governor's data that he released yesterday? For Louisiana? No. For New York. Oh, uh, no, I did not. 66% of recent admissions to a uh, thousand uh, patient recent admissions to New York hospitals have been acquired by people sheltering at home. Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, I'm locked in a space with this, with exactly. another person. Exactly. And that's the same. I read the same thing in March, early March in China. They were noticing that most people were catching it from their family members. So what do we do? We lock everybody together at home. And, you know, it, it, there's no data to support that. And this is a line that Shaka used today is that everything we're doing is based on fear and reaction. There's not a bit of scientific evidence to support it, that we're doing any good. And, there's, uh, yeah, and I think there's been this weird swing, you know, so the fear prompts us the reaction to, you know, we, we need to stay home, we need to do that. And then the counter argument is like, we should just let everybody out. And my contention has been, no, I don't think either one of those is correct. I think, yeah, I think it's in between. And I think that we've, you correct me if I'm wrong, because you're obviously dug into a little bit more. But my understanding is that different than the flu, meaning we can with pretty good accuracy determine who the, these demographics are that are going to be at serious risk. Meaning like you have multiple comorbidity, co- uh, comorbidities or you're pretty old, like, like well over 60, you're at risk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's exactly right. Um, the, this virus, it's a lot easier to know who is at risk. So it should be a lot easier for us to like, South Korea, like Taiwan, like um, Sweden, who Sweden has done very it, yeah. little quarantine, they are targeting their at-risk groups. If the nursing homes need to be locked down, no visitors. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you um, if you have a fever, we need to lock you down. You need to be, have your contacts traced. But nowhere in history, with any infectious disease, really, have we quarantined healthy people. It's always we look for the sick people and, and isolate them from the healthy. Mm-hmm. We have never isolated healthy people from healthy people. And I think, and if you look at, and I was doing this research this morning, looking at the origin of the flatten the curve thing mm-hmm. and trying to see if there was any scientific evidence behind it, and there's not. Uh, it all comes from a 2007 CDC report where it was suggestions on how to prevent a pandemic. So the first person that um, picked that up was um, uh, took that graph and posted it uh, on the internet. And then a second person took it and um, drew uh, a little bit different, modified it. The third person added that healthcare line mm-hmm. and then it became viral. And that's the goal is to flatten the curve. But no, in all of those instances, they're all saying the same thing. Flattening the curve is not going to be, change the number of deaths ultimately that much all it's doing is keeping our healthcare system from being overwhelmed right yeah if you look at the area under the top first curve and the area under the second curve they're very similar mm-hmm. maybe a few less people will die but it's not that much different i'm sorry but our hospital systems are not overwhelmed i mean i'm sitting at home at uh, 12:50 right now 
and, and there's no reason, uh, and there's tons of doctors across the country who are sitting at home. There are a few isolated places. New York City has been hit hard. Yep. There are a few places that have been hit hard, but the majority of the country hasn't. And I don't think these blanket regulations for all local locales is, is helpful. I think it's more harmful. We need to allow all these people to get the quote herd immunity mm -hmm. uh, so we don't pass it as easily to those at risk. We need to lock down those at risk. We need to do contact tracing. We need to do all the things we know how to do, but this destroying the economy and locking people in their homes for six weeks, I think is definitely overkill. Personally, I think the data eventually is going to show that. Well, interesting you bring that up. I was reading, um, so literally right behind my gym, there's a company called HRSD, which stands for Hampton Rose Sanitation Department. And, and they are oddly enough, like one of the world leaders in sanitation. So they have these $100 million projects and, 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 um, and basically like replenishing water reservoirs underground and uh, like all sorts of really high speed sanitation stuff. Like they specialize in, in poop basically. And mm -hmm. uh, I was, I got an article the other day that they are doing the uh, part of this big kind of nationwide project to figure out, try to, to really try to find some hard data on, on what is that, what are the actual numbers so that we can all, you know, act accordingly, right? So that we can just be educated and, and, and figure out what the best course of action is. So what they've been doing is they've been doing a ton of tests on all the wastewater and, and they've done this before with a lot of other things. So this is not a new, um, uh, a new practice, but they, they have with pretty high accuracy, know how many people in a, in a general area use wastewater, right? And then what they can do is they can take that, they can measure it. And it's like, they're going to measure, look at particulates, parts per million, of That's the, the way virus. they trace uh, illicit drug use. I mean, the government uses that. Or, or, oh, I didn't like know that. Oxycontin use. Yeah, that's oh, okay. their tools. Is they sample the wastewater coming out of this um, area of the city, and they know how many people are flushing uh, stuff down their toilet. You know. Oh, that's interesting. So basically, what they found was their preliminary tests that they found, and they're doing this all over the country. Um, found that they preliminary tests have found that at least ten times the number of confirmed cases is what they project uh have actually either been infected or currently have it and uh which is great for everybody by yeah. the way like that's not a bad thing that means that it's you know the numbers are better than they seem so so on that note as a doctor somebody who's kind of looked into this and and you know your mission and as a you know you're a urologist by by trade but i would imagine that you're in a pretty small minority of people who are like actually like pushing people towards health and health and wellness in your practice what should people be doing? So let's assume worst case scenario that you're going to get it. What do I need to be doing now in the event that I do get COVID? Um, quit eating highly processed carbs and oils. Uh, get your metabolic health in order. And it doesn't take that long. I mean, you know this, you see it, you see it in the gym, how people start changing quickly. I see it in my office by how quickly their labs change. And, you know, the guy I talked about this morning who lost 17 pounds in two months. Mm -hmm. it, I've got another guy who in three months reversed his, um, his uh, fasting insulin from very high to near normal and uh, uh, reversed his triglyceride to HDL ratio. His triglyceride to HDL ratio was 3.5, which... Ooh. strongly puts him in the insulin resistance category, yeah. which was reflected in his insulin fasting insulin level, um, which was enormously high. It was like 30 something. If I remember correctly. Wow. 
Um, and That's then really my, high. Yeah, uh, I've seen I've seen a fasting insulin in the sixties from someone who was That's told crazy. by someone who was told by his uh, primary doctor that he was he was fine after looking at his lab work. That's and nuts. I looked at his uh, I looked at his triglyceride to HDL ratio, which was six. And it's like your your lab's not fine. And correct me if I'm wrong, you would prefer that to be under one, correct? Absolutely. That yeah. mine's zero point five. Yeah, um, I think mine was like point. I think last time I did, I think it was like point four three or something like that. But yeah, that's it was awesome. under one. Yeah, my I, I I try to shoot for one, certainly under two, um, but three point three or above, you're insulin resistant. You got some problems, and you, yeah, I think that's going to put you at risk for COVID. So. But it reverses quickly within three months. He had dropped his fasting insulin to the normal range, and his ratio had gone down to 2.5. So he was well on his way. From oh, six, wow. Yeah, 6 to 2.5 in healing his body. And uh, I think I talked about this with Shaka uh, on when I did a podcast uh, with her. But I, I think people would be shocked at the amount of headway that you can make in those health markers in 90 days. I mean, drastic stuff. Uh, it, it happens. The body has an amazing capacity to heal. Uh, if, you just, if you just allow it to do its job and quit poisoning it with all these foods. I mean, I, you, you, and, and I feel so sad and sorry. And I used to be one of them, but people, people don't understand how much the food industry is killing us. Mm -hmm. The grocery store, 80% of the foods have added sugar. You buy anything in a bag, box, or a carton, you're killing yourself just slowly, but you're killing yourself. And is that your first recommendation to pay to patients? Yes. My, my, the first thing when I want to start them off slowly is if you know there's sugar in it, don't eat it. That's the first thing I want you to cut out. I don't even get into the avoid bread, wheat, rice, corn, potatoes, you know, all that stuff that I avoid now. But um, I just say, cut out sugar. Don't eat the cookies, the cakes, the candy bars, the Coke, uh, Mountain Dew, Dr. Mm -hmm. Pepper, whatever your flavor is. Just cut that out and stay out of the inside of the store. If it comes in a bag, box, or cellophane wrapper, it's not good for you. Um, 99 times out of 100. So shop on the perimeter of the store and look for foods that are in their natural form that have not been altered by any human hands. So mm -hmm. if you can pick up a piece of food and say, this is a broccoli, it looks like broccoli, you can eat it. This is a piece of meat. Uh, it looks like it was just cut off of an animal. You can eat it. You know, if you go in and see this casserole with broccoli and meat mixed in it, who knows? You know, what's in that? I, I don't know. It's It's been processed. So I tell people just watch for that. Look for whole natural foods. And I don't even use the word keto anymore, although I'm in ketosis all the time. Um, and I'm highly fat adapted at this point to where I can eat whatever I want in one meal. And it doesn't even kick me out now for Christmas. Um, I like I used to. I, yeah. A sampler plate of everything, including <laughs> the traditional dessert sampler plate where there's like four different desserts and you got to try them all. And I came home that night and my and I never checked my ketones anymore. But just out of curiosity, I wanted to check and my ketone level was 0 0.6. And um, my my glucose was uh, 90 or no, it was 105. So I, I, I did have a little spike in yep. higher than I'm used to, and but my ketones were a little lower than I'm used to. But the next morning I woke up uh, fasting 90 and, and ketones were back to 0 0.9. So, you know, I, I just, I can do almost anything I want in one meal 
and it doesn't affect me now. But um, I tell people it's just the day in, day out. You got to break that cycle. You got to give your body a chance to heal. And the best way, I don't even use keto because if I use keto, they're going to go to their doctor and tell them they're doing keto and they're going to say, oh, that's dangerous for you. You got to stop that. So I say what we're going to do is we're going to put you on a whole foods, natural foods diet. If it looks like it came from nature, if you could get it with a, a gun, a fishing pole, or your hands out of nature, then eat it. And that's pretty much all. And Man, I, that, that is the CrossFit prescription, you know, eat meats, vegetables, you know, nuts, seeds, some exactly. fruit, no starch, no sugar. So Exactly. Um, and I have this little handout I give people from, uh, from uh, dietdoctor.com. It's this beginner's guide to a low-carb okay. And it's a great little handout. I've written little notes on it. I have a few videos for them to watch. I have CrossFit.com on there. I love now that CrossFit.com is publishing the at-home workouts of the older people. Yep. Because I say, which is funny, which is funny now, you know, (laughs) can you imagine that 10, 15 years ago, people have been like, well, I mean, six months ago, six months ago, three months ago, everybody's like, this is silly. But now everybody's like, oh, well, (laughs) jokes on us (laughs) at home workouts, everybody. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I, I send them to CrossFit.com now and I say, you go every day and look and see if they posted a new workout you can do at home. And uh, another thing I tell them to do at home is Tabata workouts. Um, and whatever you Simple. can, just four minutes a day, do one day to buy push-ups, the next day to buy the sit-ups, the next day to buy the chair squats, the next day, whatever, jumping jacks, whatever you can do, make it a, a Tabata workout, do a different one every day, come up with seven of them and repeat them every week. And when you see me in three months, you're going to be a different person. That's awesome. Have you had anybody do that and come back in, in three months? Um, a couple who, who, I mean it's not the results that I would like, but yeah, I do see improvement. And, um, you know, ultimately I'd love to get them into the gym. And, you know, that's why I started CrossFit Medicus one was, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, time constraints and all that. It's not exactly at this point what I would love for it to be, mm-hmm. which is my goal would be to be more like, um, CrossFit neuro. Are you familiar with that in Australia? Um, no, I'm not. It's a neurosurgeon. Um, okay. He, He's um, he's pretty uh, big and affiliated with uh, CrossFit Health also. Okay. I'm blanking on his name, although I know it. Look up CrossFit Neuro. It's in Australia. Okay. I'm going to look him up. I'm having him on the podcast. When, when you walk into his neurosurgery office, you see people working out behind a glass window. That's awesome. And they're all neurosurgery patients. They're all people who came into his office with back pain thinking they're never going to walk again. Okay. And he tells his patients when they come in, said, look, these people over here were just like you a year ago. And now look at them. They're doing wall balls and cleans and all that. So, you know, it's, uh, that's, that would be my ultimate goal is to have a CrossFit gym somehow in my office to where I could say, look, you know, you've got erectile dysfunction. You've got low testosterone. You've got this, this is what you need to be doing. And I want to help you get there. So tell me a little bit about Medicus One. So like you and uh, and uh, Dr. Ken, yeah. yeah, yeah, is your partner. Like how did so, that? And then what's the goal there? The way that started was um, in 2017, I believe it was. Um, I really started deep diving into all of the videos Greg was pushing out, um, the uh, continuum videos and all yep. that. And I said, I would love to get him to Shreveport to talk to the local medical society to try and help start changing the medical opinions. Because in medicine, it's all low fat, 
um, you know, eat less, exercise more. That's about yeah. all they say. And eat low fat. So I, I emailed, I emailed the CrossFit.com, the general inquiry email. And about three weeks later, I got an email from uh, Russ Green said, uh, Greg is very interested, would love to come meet. Um, when do you want him to come? And I was like, are you serious? I mean, that, that's all it took. He's coming. So I, I contacted a, a back and forth a couple and ended up coming in uh, right after the games. I think it was 2017 games. He came in August and gave a grand rounds, his exact talk that he has given a million times. He gave it yep. at the LSU uh, grand rounds. That's awesome. And, um, at that meeting, I met um, uh, Brian Mulvaney. Okay. Uh, and of course, Greg. And um, and Brian said, um, you know, we, we're doing some things with docs. We'd love to get you uh, your L1. You don't have your L1? It's like, no, it's I'm not going to ever be training anyone. Why would I need an L1 was my thinking at the time. But – he showed me and Greg showed me how the two can be joined. You know, my passion for helping people and my love of CrossFit are the same thing. It, it's all about fitness and long-term health. And uh, so Ken and I were actually the first two physicians that they um, trained, you know, for free. Mm -hmm. uh, L one, they flew us out to the ranch. Nice. And we took our L1 class just with a regular L1 class. At yeah. The it, this, this wasn't the MDL one that we know. One today. MDL yeah. one. We were, we were zero MDL one. Now they have one, you know, one MDL one, two MDL one. They all get yeah. t-shirts. That's cool. We didn't get, get t-shirt or anything. We were just in the hot, dirty, uh, crummy old, uh, in the warehouse warehouse at the time. Now it looks like you walk in there and it's this, uh, this conference room. They spruced yeah. it up, but, uh, we got our L1 and, um, uh, they encouraged us to open up a box. And I was thinking of a name that could fit, um, medicine and my goal and I was um, doing CrossFit health and they said well that one's taken and I said well how about CrossFit Medicus and I submitted it and then Kathy responded saying uh, no there can't be anything that has to do with medicine and I was like well Brian just told me to that it was fine and she said let me get back to you and about 30 minutes later she said okay you're approved and so I say that we're the first medical oriented CrossFit box with the name CrossFit Medicus one. That's why I named it CrossFit Medicus. Yeah. One. That's awesome. And then Ken and I um, kind of partner in it together. And our goal was to try and take patients from our practices and bring them to work out with us. We don't have a physical box. It's more of a virtual idea. It's just, yeah. so I have my one, I have my own box. I can coach someone in my garage if I want to, but the idea was to, bring them with us to our gym and let them be exposed to the community. Yes. But at this point in my life, I can't have that, that box in my practice, mm -hmm. um, but I can bring them with me to work out. And we did that for a year and a half or so. Um, my success with that just wasn't what I was hoping and mm -hmm. because those patients didn't buy into the process. You have to buy into the community. Yeah. And you know, it somehow, Although they trusted me go, they just didn't stick with it. And I, yeah. I had too many failures and I kind of got um, disillusioned in it all. And, and I'm holding on to the CrossFit Medicus one affiliate just for my dream one day is to have a box like that. But if you I, could do it again, what do you think would make it successful? I think we, we would have to, we'd have to have a physical location and, and commitment from members to come mm -hmm. and, and 
develop our own community, just like CrossFit. Yeah. It's a community. And, and the reason I think that a lot of my patients is they're scared still. They walk, walk in and see all these people cleaning, you know, and, and see me snatching 205 pounds. And they're like, I can never do that. And yeah. Do you think they need to see somebody that looks like them? Exactly. They need to yeah. see somebody who looks like them. And so having a physical location where we have, just like they're doing at CrossFit headquarters right now. Yeah, I was just going to mention that what Michelle's doing there. Yep. Very successful. And, and they got a waiting list, don't they, I think? Yeah. The, well, so it's a little different now because they basically told everybody to stay home, obviously, because this is a serious at-risk population that they're working Absolutely. with. Um, but I think, I want to say they were something between 70 to 100 members in there. Yeah. Of all people that are largely over the age of 70 or very, very sick, meaning morbid, you know, clinically obese. When I ask myself, why does that work and why what I'm trying to do doesn't work, the only answer is community. Um, oh, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's 100% that works. They did not have the sense of community walking into that box, even with me as their physician, um, that they needed to, yeah. to speak with it. So they need to walk into a box of other overweight, older, sick people to say, Oh, I can do that. You yeah. know, um, and, and they see people sitting down to a box and standing up or, or doing pushups against the wall, you know, yeah. I, I can do that. And that's where they need to start. And they need that sense of community. It's so important. And that's what kept me in, you know, yeah. my best friends on the planet now are all, you know, Jeff Westmore and Ken Sanders, uh, Tim and Fred and, yeah. and Aaron and everybody. Are, are all my CrossFit buddies now. And, that's awesome. Well, I, that's something, you know, since talking to Michelle and then since talking to you and other people that are doing, it's something that's on my, my list of things to try to tackle is to try to build that community for that at-risk population. Uh, it's, it's, it's a big nut to crack, but I, th I think if you understand that portion of it, which means they have to be, and this is what's cool about what Michelle's doing is she's figured it out. She's like, hey, this is how you have to do it. This is how they have to be, for lack of better terms, isolated. But they need to be with other people that look like them because they're going to get freaked yeah. out and never come back, and which everybody needs to recognize. It's very important. It's trust. They, ha they have to understand and trust you that you are taking care of them. And if that means instead of doing box jumps, they step over a crack in the floor, mm -hmm. that's where they need to start. They yep. need to – you cannot hurt these people. I had one guy who dropped out who um, – in the workout was box jumps and I didn't want him doing box jumps. Um, but he, uh, I had him jumping over a crack on the floor, just side to side, jump over the crack. He Scaling. Said, he said, I think, I think I can do box jumps. And I was like, well, you know, um, okay. And so we got him the little box. Damn it. If he didn't jump three or four times and then grab his back. Yep. And, uh, and he hurt his back jumping on jumping eight inches off the floor and yep. I knew it I let him do it uh, I shouldn't have but you know he hurt his back and he blamed it all on CrossFit and so he never came back <laughs> we've we've all we've all had to learn that lesson the hard way uh, myself yeah. included um well that's really really cool I, I mean that kind of stuff inspires me to kind of figure out different ways to serve the community and, and run a better gym so I'm, I'm that's what definitely I tell anybody is isolate those people in a, in a class yeah. to themselves yeah they have to have their own time slot where nobody else is in the gym and this is cool and this is why I can't wait to go back out there we were actually supposed to go there in March but the trip got canceled uh, Jason and I were supposed to go out there and spend a week out the there BBC training. Or, uh, uh, no, with uh, with Michelle working, yeah, yeah, working with them. So yeah. I, I'm really looking forward to getting that rescheduled. But um, 
because I think that's important and that's and that's where you get to show people hey this really is for everybody if done if done well and done safely so yeah. Well, Doc, I know you're busy. Um, thank you for your time. This was great. I really hope this stuff kind of shed some light on some things. And uh, if people want to reach out to you, uh, where can they do that if they have questions about any of this stuff? Um, I guess. Uh, or if you don't want them reaching out to you, I'll tell you. Know, I'm on Instagram, uh, CrossFit okay. Medicus One. Uh, okay. I'm on Facebook, CrossFit Medicus One. Okay. Um, you know, you can contact us there. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, I, I'm not changing the world massively, but I like to to try and help everybody I come in contact realize that <clears throat> the process of aging does not mean you have to become debilitated. You can maintain um, your strength well into your ripe old age. And it all just takes wanting to do it with proper nutrition. And it's an uphill battle there. We didn't even talk about nutrition much. Yeah. Golly, changing the, uh, changing the perception, the public and the government and all that is, is really hard right now. But that's how you do it. One person at a time. And then that person brings somebody else in. That's all you can do. We're, yeah. we're, we, you know, affect your immediate circle. So, yeah. right. well, Doc, thank you so much. This is amazing. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And uh, I can't wait to have you back on because I'm sure we could talk about a lot more things. So, thank okay. you. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to Best Hour of Their Day. And thanks again to our special guest. We appreciate all you guys do for us with best hour of their day when it comes to sharing our posts on Instagram, when it comes to subscribing to us on YouTube, when it comes to the constant feedback, we are grateful and we appreciate it. We are trying to build a community based on coaching development and becoming the best version of yourself. And it goes without saying that we couldn't do without all of you. So if you haven't already please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Season one of Dropping In is out. We are getting tremendous feedback and we'd love for you to check it out. Leave us a comment on there. Head over to our Instagram, give us a follow, like our pictures, feel free to share anything that resonates with you. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or feedback for us, please don't hesitate. Email us, day at gmail.com. Thanks again. Until the next episode, we hope you've had the best hour of your day.